Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. If you are one of our new listeners, I'm not really going to explain it because I feel like you're going to catch up pretty quickly. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. link. Our first link comes from CBS 60 Minutes. Hey, a nice stalwart right. of journalism. And I wanted to focus on some kind of uplifting stuff because what a week and what a month and what a yeah. year. Am I right? Uplifting's uh, good. Yes. I, make me feel uplifted. I will do my very best. And or <laughs> shall I say Chris Downey will do his very best. Um, <laughs> the article is entitled Architect Goes Blind says he's actually gotten better at his job. Huh. Wow. So this is an interview with Leslie Stahl, um, and it's basically a transcript, but it also has an accompanying video that's worth a watch. Basically, it's a story about how an architect named Chris Downey, who lives outside of San Francisco, back in 2008, he was 45 years old. He had a great job at a small housing firm outside San Francisco, happily married, 10-year-old son. He was an assistant little league coach, an avid cyclist. But then they discovered a tumor in his brain, and the tumor was right next to the optic nerve. The surgery went fine, but then he noticed when he was playing ball with his kid that half of his field of vision would kind of go in and out, like he would stop seeing the ball. And then Ooh. pretty shortly thereafter, he just lost all sense of sight altogether. And this was after the surgery. Yeah. When he came out of surgery, he was able to see, but then half his field of vision disappeared. And then the next time he woke up, it was just complete and total darkness. He couldn't see wow. anything. They did days of frantic testing. And then a surgeon gave him the bad news that it was permanent and basically sent in a social worker who sat down and said, oh, I see from your chart that you're an architect. So let's talk about career alternatives. Like right oh. off the bat, they were like, wow. oh, you can't be an architect anymore. And he just felt himself getting boxed in by limitations. But he did a lot of thinking. And, you know, his son is 10 years old. He was at that point in time where he's saying, listen, you really need to learn how to apply yourself. If you really want something, you have to work at it. And he realized that he could be a model for the kind of behavior he wanted to instill for his son. So motivated to set an example, he headed back to work a month later. Wow. wow. He also joined up with a nonprofit called Lighthouse for the Blind and Visually Impaired. And he found different tools that actually helped bring him back into the fold. So he found out that he could sketch his ideas using these malleable wax sticks on plans that had been printed out that look like regular architect blueprints, but are embossed. So it's basically like Braille. You can kind of uh -huh. feel your way through what the designs look like. And he discovered that, especially as he was moving through spaces that he had been familiar with from an architectural level, he discovered that he started hearing them. He started noticing the sounds, the textures, how the sound would change oh, because wow. there's a canopy overhead, mm -hmm. how sound works from the tip of the cane to kind of echo things around. And it gave him another way to really experience the space that essentially had him rediscover architecture. He felt wow. like a kid again. And he started getting a lot of work because he basically started specializing as the blind architect. Huh. Right. So what happened was there was, I think, like a veterans center that was redesigning some of their blind accessible spaces, and they were very interested to talk to him. And yeah. because of that, he was able to start to pivot his unique perspective and skill set into consulting for a lot of projects that specifically work at buildings for the blind. Mm -hmm. Well, and I would imagine acoustics, like concert halls and stuff, the acoustics mm -hmm. matter. So you would, you would want that added perspective. 
Yeah, yeah. He even had a chance to, like right now he is in the process of redeveloping that lighthouse center that I mentioned earlier. And one of the things that he talked about was that 99% of the time, people who become blind later in life don't know a blind person already. So they're really coming into it super cold. They have no idea what to expect. They don't really have anyone to kind of show them the ropes. So these sort of social centers are really, really important. And he wanted it to feel more like coming into the Apple store with this idea that there might be something fun around the corner and that it's a space to explore and be delighted and surprised instead of feel really fearful about. And so one of his ideas was to break through the building internal architecture and link the three floors with an internal staircase that sighted people can see, but more importantly, that the blind can actually hear. It really promotes things like being able to hear the tap of someone's cane or even the click of a toenails for the guide dogs. <laughs> and you can actually hear people based on the way that they tap or the way that they walk. Like these kinds of patterns can be recognizable over time. And so having a very sound accessible space is really important for those who, who are blind. Ultimately, Chris Downey is convinced he's a better architect today than when he was cited, and there's silver linings all over the place. Yeah, well, and I mean... It, yeah, absolutely. There's a certain element of, like, screw you to that social worker who is just immediately <laughs> yeah. like, drop everything you've known and come up with something different because you're never getting it back. Exactly. And it It is not a death sentence. And that was something that he notes in this interview. He was like, look, I'm still here. My son still has a father. This is something that I can actually work with, work through and make even better. And based on this interview, it sounds like that absolutely hit the mark. Well, good for him. A little yes. bit of hope today, huh? <laughs> yeah. Next link. Next link. So this article comes from the Detroit News and it is titled, in North Michigan woods, feds raid an alleged upscale art forgery factory. Ooh. Huh. Yeah. So FBI agents raided a home in northern Michigan this week while investigating a sophisticated art forgery ring that allegedly tricked connoisseurs into buying phony paintings purported to be from top American artists. Mm. The raid targeted Traverse City resident Donald Henkel a 60-year-old self-described artist who's accused in a sealed FBI search warrant affidavit of orchestrating a years-long conspiracy involving previously unknown paintings by well-known artists and counterfeit sports memorabilia claimed to have belonged to Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, and other legends. Huh. The court filing describes a scheme involving six-figure deals, wealthy buyers, and elegantly faked artwork that actually fooled some of the country's top art experts. <laughs> So he wasn't making replicas of known works. He was making new works and saying, this is by this famous person you've heard of. Exactly. Yeah. Oh. He was replicating the styles and saying that they were new pieces that were heretofore undiscovered. Mm -hmm. So Elizabeth Feld is managing director of Herschel and Adler in New York City, which is one of the country's top American art galleries. And she describes it as every dealer's nightmare. <laughs> the gallery spent about $500,000 on paintings linked to the forgery scheme. Wow. Yeah. She said these are very beautiful, fake or not. And whoever did this is an accomplished artist, just not the artist he or she purported to be. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. credit where it's due, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so the search warrant records also reveal how FBI agents discovered the forgeries after learning the type of paint used in one composition did not exist at the time of the artwork's mm -hmm. supposed creation almost 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. You got to watch out for that one, Art Forges. <laughs> <laughs> the investigation culminated outside of a large red barn and home at the end of a long, heavily wooded driveway along East Hoxie Road in rural Cedar, which is actually an unincorporated area of fewer than 100 people northwest of Traverse City. So I guess if you're going to do something shady, uh, that's the place to do Go it. Go out yeah, in the woods, out of town. man. Classic. Yeah. 
Uh, it included everything from a Babe Ruth bat to a Mickey Mouse drawing autographed by Walt Disney himself. But <laughs> not really. Right. <laughs> the search warrant affidavit also indicates that FBI agents were investigating a suspected mail and wire fraud conspiracy. And they were looking for evidence that included bank records, artwork purportedly by artists Ralston Crawford, George Alt, and Gertrude Abercrombie. They also were hoping to find supplies that would help produce the forged artworks and sports memorabilia, uh, which was anything from bats to baseballs to lathing tools, grease pencils, and shellac. But they did not actually say what items were seized, uh, just mm. because the FBI has everything under wraps. Mm -hmm. And there haven't been any explicit arrests yet, but they're definitely searching the property. But a little bit of history, the investigation is actually focused on the scheme since March 2016. So they've been trying to bust this out for a while. Hmm. And they identified eight probable forged paintings, five of which were billed as previously unknown works of Alt, who was an American artist active through the 1940s. Two other paintings were purportedly created by Crawford, who was an artist active through the 1970s, whose precisionist style was similar to that of Alt. Investigators believed Henkel worked with co-conspirators in California, Florida, and Virginia to sell the phony artwork. So in May 2016, Henkel sold one painting purportedly created by Crawford. The buyer, who was only identified as victim three, actually purchased the painting at auction, and bank records show that $299,000 were transferred to Henkel's account. Wow. I mean, it made, yeah. it made it all the way to the auctions. I mean, obviously, they were going through proper channels to actually offload these forgeries. Yeah. Well, and you got to think how many different people looked at it and said, yeah, this is legit. Because certainly people have tried forgeries in the past. Yeah. So you have to, like, it makes sense to me that he had conspirators in multiple states. Because somebody's sure. got to be passing this off down a chain before it ever gets to a place where enough people have said, yeah, this is real. Let's auction it off. You know, the mm -hmm. irony here, too, is that for people who have advanced art degrees or whatever and probably are never going to recoup whatever it costs to actually get those degrees, but they have a lot of skill in this, this is probably the only, like, profitable avenue for them just because the art market is such a racket. It's highly subjective. There mm -hmm. are huge sums of money. I've always been really suspect of the high fine art market anyway and always get a little bit of a tickle thrill whenever something like this happens you're like the auction house can stand to be out a half million dollars. <laughs> yeah. fine. You know, victim number three my heart goes out to you but i'm sure you're gonna be fine right yeah. <laughs> if you can drop 300k on a painting mm -hmm. eh, you're probably able to take the hit mm -hmm. yeah i mean at least one of these pieces might be able to pay for my abandoned art school degree right so, <laughs> right uh, in August 2017, an unidentified victim who paid $200,000 for an alt painting became concerned after being unable to find any trace of the piece titled The Homestead in the artist's archives. Mm. And so from there, a conservator then actually examined the piece. And so David Klein of the David Klein Gallery in Detroit and Birmingham gives us a little background on alt and Crawford styles. Alt and Crawford embraced precisionism, which was a movement that involved reducing compositions to their geometric essentials and usually featured strikingly simple shapes, smooth surfaces, and really minimal detail. Hmm. So in March 2019, Henkel allegedly approached a prospective buyer about an Abercrombie painting coming home, and he shipped the painting in 2019 with an Ann Arbor return address, and according to the FBI, shipping records indicated a declared value of $1,000 on the item. Ooh. But in May 
of 2019, the painting was sold at auction for $93,750, and the bulk of the proceeds were wired to Henkel's account. See what I'm talking about? Like, the jump in value there is just tied to nothing. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. that's craziness to me. Well, and especially you're talking about, like, oh, these simple geometric shapes. Like, I don't know what any of these works of art look like, but now I'm imagining, like, it's it's line drawings. It's not that hard. Like, anybody could have copied them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm looking at one of the pieces right now, which is basically a red barn with a grain silo in front of it, and it's really just blocks of shape. There's no real detail besides some angles that define the architecture, so it's really kind of like bare bones and very flat. It's like the classic, so my seven-year-old could paint that kind of picture. <laughs> yeah, like maybe your seven-year-old, he was really gifted. Right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah. It seems to me there's something, there's a psychological factor in the type of person who becomes a forger because you're giving all these high dollar amounts. And I'm like, okay, so Hinkle had tons and tons and tons of money. And yet he's living in some farmhouse out in the middle of nowhere with this barn and everything where he's storing his stuff. He doesn't seem to be able to use a lot of the riches that he's accumulated. So either there's like an end game where he's like, okay, I'm going to do this for 10 years and then go retire in Maui. Or there's something about it that drives him to do it even though he's not really getting to live in the lap of luxury, which is theoretically why he's doing it. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I'd yeah. be curious to know what his finances look like because it could be just as feasible. He's been funneling that offshore and, you know, doing some classic one percenter money movement around or <laughs> who knows if he had fine forged antiques or whatever else that he was living amongst. Yeah, a team of more than 30 FBI agents descended on Henkel's property on Tuesday and found in the 4,000 square foot main building art supplies, paintings and other art that appeared to be in progress, as well as baseball bats, baseballs and other memorabilia. And there was so much clutter and evidence of other crimes that agents returned Wednesday. And wow. they wrote, Okay, 4,000 square feet, that is much more than just a little farmhouse. Yeah, that's a big, yeah. all right, you got yourself a little mansion in the woods. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's in a town of like less than 100 people. So, you know, you could probably buy that pretty cheap, mm-hmm, relatively sure. speaking. <laughs> Shani Brooke, who's the owner of Higher Art Gallery in downtown Traverse City, actually describes Henkel as an unwelcome fringe figure on the area art scene. He gained some attention for creating a six-foot-tall bronze sculpture called Rain Man, placed outside the village at Grand Traverse Commons, which is a local shopping development. And she says, I don't want to know him. He used to come into the gallery a lot, but we've never shown his work or represented or worked with him. He is one of those people that likes to get a thrill out of making you feel uncomfortable. Okay, so he's really just like, yeah, yeah, but I mean, you know, the art gallery owner not taking an artist's work. I mean, how uncomfortable is that for any kind of burgeoning artist who clearly has enough skill to pull the wool over the eyes of conservators, rich victims of auction houses? I know I'm getting a little defensive about this guy because artists get a really bad shake, especially in America. But dang. Well, it also maybe goes to show, though, like no matter how talented you are, if you're a jerk, you're not going to be successful. Like maybe he truly is that talented, but also he's walking around being this arrogant, horrible human being. And so everyone's like, "Mm, we don't really care how good you are. (laughs) Yeah, it's hard to say because it's also he's got these three co-conspirators. So who knows if he's even doing the paintings? Maybe he's the sculpture guy Mm. and he just never succeeded. So he's using somebody else's work to make money and then splitting it three ways. Well, maybe he can pivot this into some good project management skills. Because herding cats is a thing and herding artist cats, a whole other level. Yeah, well, so now he's going to be able to do that from prison. He'll be able to start a really impressive cigarette forgery ring. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. 
So this one comes from thehustle.co. It is called Meet the Company That Sells Your Lost Airplane Baggage. Oh, and, no! Yeah. So I knew it. This is, I knew it. <laughs> did, have you lost a bag, Way? Is this a personal issue? Yes. I mean, once. But also, you hear so many stories. And where does that baggage end up going? It's mm-hmm. got to be... The know. highest bidder, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and apparently not, because this guy has a monopoly, which is the really interesting thing. So this is... They, they give us some stats. 4.3 billion bags are checked every year. Of those, about 25 million are lost every year. What? Um, now, most of those do eventually find their owners, right? They're labeled. They just got it. They got on the wrong plane. They got to find them and send them back, whatever. But 1.2 million suitcases a year are never reunited with their owners. And Oof, they wow. basically go into warehouses. Every airline just kind of has a place where they shunt them over. And after 90 days, if no one has managed to come and find it and collect it, it is sold to this company, which is Unclaimed Baggage, very original, and they are the nation's only retailer of lost luggage. Rude. Yeah, well. (laughs) I mean, just because they have a monopoly on it, too, like, I I also dread to think of what, like, a competitive model of reselling people's lost stuff would look like, but So the company started in the early 1970s with Hugo Doyle Owens. He was an insurance salesman and a ham radio enthusiast, which I want to say, like, kids, there was a time when we had radio, but ham radio goes back even farther. Like, that was AM. <laughs> like, that's old, old school. But a lot of people who used ham radio were truckers and bus drivers, people who were on the road mm-hmm. a whole lot. So Owens heard, just through the chatter, he was sort of listening in on these channels, that a bus company in D.C. had this huge collection of unclaimed baggage that they were trying to figure out what to do with. So he just got a loan and he called them up and he offered them $300 for all of it, which today would be about $2,000. And he just put everything out on card tables with a little handmade sign, advertised it like a garage sale, and he sold out of everything in 24 hours. What? Wow. And he made a profit. So he's like, well, you know, this is kind of a cool little side thing I'll do on the weekends or whatever. He was still selling insurance. But at some point, he was getting so much in and spending so much time to it that his boss at the insurance company gave him an ultimatum and said, you're going to sell insurance, you're going to sell luggage. He said, well, I'm going to sell luggage because I'm making a lot more money doing that. (laughs) So he started kind of reaching out proactively to other companies, basically saying, hey, I'm sure you have this problem. I will take this stuff off your hands and you can recoup some of your cost, right? So by 1978, he had deals with three major airlines and he was buying 3,000 pieces of luggage every month. So this is clearly lost luggage is not a new problem. He passed away a few years ago, but his son runs the business now. It is thriving. It is basically a tourist destination. It's a 50,000-square-foot warehouse outside of Scottsboro, Alabama. The population of Scottsboro is about 15,000 people, but this one business gets about a million customers per year. What? So, yeah, people in person. Yeah, people travel from all over because I mean it's that that idea of like you're going to find a deal, right? Because mm-hmm. when they yeah. buy the luggage, they have no idea what's inside it. That's part of the thing mm-hmm. is you could find treasures in there. You have no idea. Yeah, and it's not like a flea market in the sense that this was actually in use stuff that wasn't just discarded or outdated. It's like this is some this belongs to somebody. Right. This They're is using like it. quality currently in use stuff, especially if you yeah. think like oh, if you're traveling for business. You're going to have a lot of nice suits, right? Yeah. You're not always bringing your, your beachwear. Sometimes you're bringing nice, expensive stuff. <sighs> they they have the largest laundry facility in all of Alabama. They wash <sighs> about 70,000 pieces of clothing per month. Wow. The Sun kind of updated a little bit. He launched an online store. So now they don't have you don't have to go in person. You can go and like browse what they have and they'll ship it to you. And even with all their customers and all the circulation that they do, only about a third of the items that they bring in are actually sold. Another <laughs> third goes to charity. 
they have kind of some standard categories where like all the wheelchairs they get go to a certain veterans organization, all the strollers go to pregnancy centers, anything that they don't feel like they can sell goes to homeless shelters. That's nice. Yeah, I mean, there is an element of, you know, (laughs) some (laughs) niceness. I mean, it's not all nice. Like, there are definitely... No, no. Because the thing is, they often find inside of these suitcases identifying information. Like, names and addresses. Where, of course, you're like, well, why didn't the airline company reach out to that person? But then, by the time it gets to unclaimed baggage, they basically said, no, we're not going to make any effort to find the person who owns this. They said, uh, the guy was directly quoted as saying, look, we're a retailer. We aren't set up to find your Aunt Jane's blue Samsonite. You can buy it back from us. And some people people have. They said, actually, people who have heard of this business will sometimes go out there specifically to get expensive things that they want back. There was a guy who lost a suitcase coming back from Europe, and he came to Alabama and looked, and he found his custom-tailored lavender suit. Uh, Okay. Yeah, that's worth tracking down. Yeah, and it was definitely his, but he had to buy it back. And, you know, I I don't know if they really gouged him on the price or if it was still a good deal to get his suit back. Yeah, I mean, uh, do they have some kind of, like, discount program where if you can prove personally identifiable information associated with your belongings that somebody else bought from someone who really didn't even have ownership over it in the first place, (laughs) a.k.a. the airlines, like, do you get a bring-it-back-home kind of discount? Like, oh, because you are the owner? I mean, this kind of just... No, there really isn't. I'm sorry to tell you. They they have because they because, you know, famous people travel and lose luggage, too. They had one story where a famous baseball player for the Yankees, a guy named Whitey Ford, lost his piece of luggage. And inside it was a team jacket that only the players had. And it had his name kind of embroidered in it. So, I mean, there was absolutely no question. It was clearly the jacket of this famous guy. And the guy who ran the business was like, no, you can buy it back at our jacket price. Like, we're not Mm. we're not going to give it to you. But they do have a cool list of, like, really weird items that they've found over the years, uh, some of which blew my mind. So they found a marble tombstone with a name and a death date, like, in a suitcase. I'm not sure why you would follow that. Yeah. Uh, They Hmm. found a Gucci suitcase full of ancient Egyptian artifacts from 1500 B.C. That has to be illegal as heck. It probably was. And they don't, like, they acknowledge they're in in close touch with the FBI. And, like, anytime something that's clearly problematic comes through, they hand that straight over. They don't deal with that. They said they found drugs many times. They found big (laughs) suitcases full of money. They found stuff that they're like, no, get it. Get it out of our warehouse. Um, But then, on the other hand, they found this one is absolutely amazing and personal to me. They found the original four-foot-tall Huggle puppet from the 1986 film Labyrinth. Like, the puppet. Yeah. Somebody who had worked on the film was apparently traveling with it and lost their suitcase. And they found... (gasps) I mean, it's crazy. And they have a picture of it. Because, of course, they don't sell that. They put it up on display in their store as, like, oh, look at the cool thing you might find if you dig through our (laughs) rack. Um, oh, my god! Yeah, and they actually, in that case, they actually paid a puppeteer specialist to restore it and kind of put in some of the history of it on a little placard and all sorts of stuff. But then well, they now found... I can better understand why a million people are visiting this place every year. It's like a yeah. museum of ill-begotten stuff. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, they also, they found an F-16 guidance system belonging to the U.S. Navy. I think they had to give that back. Uh, it's probably classified. Uh, they found... <laughs> A Nikon F camera from NASA's space shuttle program. Um, Oh, my gosh. Yeah. They found a mysterious sealed box that was labeled call CDC immediately, which they did. Um, (laughs) No, they they never got any word on what was inside that, but they just immediately sent it off. They found a a live rattlesnake in a duffel bag. Nope. Uh, Other animals. They had vacuum packed frogs, a foul smelling bear hide packed in salt. They had a rare violin made by a student of Stradivarius and... 
they had a xylophone from Neil Diamond's 2008 world tour. <laughs> and I'm not like, I mean, some of this stuff, you have to imagine they did a little bit of research to figure out whose it is. Yeah. I mean, if you open up a suitcase and it has a xylophone, okay, cool. But how do you identify <laughs> that it's from a Neil Diamond tour unless you're like, no, I want to know who this is. So you put in yeah. the effort to find who it belongs to and then you say, no, I'm not going to give it back. So, wow. But yeah, like it said, they have an online store now. So you can go and like see some of their weirder, stranger items online. They had some really cool photos. There's a whole wall of headphones because, of course, uh. other than just traveling with them, they buy things that are left on planes. So uh, lots of cell phone mm -hmm. chargers. What's the name of this museum business organization again? The business is just called Unclaimed Baggage. Uh, I don't know what Unclaimed the website baggage, is, but right. I imagine if you search it up, you can find it. I, it seems like, on the one hand, I don't want to support that kind of <laughs> business. <laughs> right, like you right. said, it feels dirty. But at the same time, it's like, oh, man, I want to see what they have. Like, there's definitely yeah. a kind of voyeuristic, what did they find in all these suitcases? Yeah, totally. Next link. Next, Next link. link. We're going to go back down to earth a little bit on this one. It's from Atlas Obscura. It's called The Lost Art of Growing Blueberries with Fire. Ooh. Huh. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> so we're basically following um, <laughs> a farmer named Nicholas Lindholm of Blue Hill Berry Company. And this area in Maine um, around the coastline, it's called, and I know I'm going to get this wrong, Passamacotti, and that's uh, named after a tribe that had been cultivating these native blueberries. For a lot of indigenous people, this is considered a sacred fruit. And so they had already been using fire as a way to tend these crops. But after 19th century industrialization, the ancient custom of doing these prescribed fires by hand kind of fell by the wayside. And in part, it was because, you know, it takes a lot of people. You have to burn uneven rocky fields by hand. It's mm -hmm. really time consuming. So there are these mechanized burns that have made it a little bit easier. And a few main growers are still using kind of the old traditional hand firing to make these world class wild blueberries. And this kind of goes into sort of like how this guy got into it, what exactly it takes to do this. So he, like most people who have degrees in anthropology and religion, went into farming. <laughs> he basically <laughs> um, had like an internship working at an organic farm. And after his apprenticeship, and he'd been doing that for a few years, in 1995, he found a property that had 15 acres of blueberry fields. But he kind of paused for a second because you can apprentice on a farm or study sustainable ag, but nothing really covers wild blueberries. Like hmm. a lot of it is for, you know, crops that you have to very intentionally put in. And so he basically had, pun intended, a trial by fire in figuring <laughs> out how to really kind of tend to and optimize this practice. Another problem he ran into was that he was kind of an out-of-towner and the local growers who also grew blueberries were not really forthcoming when it came to giving him advice. You know, you don't give up information about what you're doing or what tricks you have or what new tools have been invented. Mm -hmm. The industry has been ravaged by industrialization over that last half century. It's a lot more competitive. What he did is he joined the local volunteer fire department. So he was able to meet some other local families and other blueberry growers. And he's been so good at doing this, even with a couple of missteps, that today he owns two fields and leases six more 
all of which comprise about 50 acres of blueberries across six towns. So he's wow. pretty good at what he does. So is there something special about blueberries? Like, I, I understand that controlled burns can definitely rejuvenate the growing, put, you know, these certain nutrients mm-hmm. back into the soil. But is there something special about blueberries that grow better after a fire? Or is it just that that's what happens to grow in this area? Yep. The 12 to 14 inch tall blueberry bush that we're used to seeing above ground, if you've ever seen a blueberry bush, is really only about one third of the actual plant. Because hmm. underground, you've got a this network of rhizomes, which are basically storage houses of energy and food. And these rhizomes work alongside certain strains of fungus to extract what few nutrients are actually existing in the gravelly acidic main soil. So when you burn everything above ground, it helps enrich that underground. It's all about soil maintenance, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it also, when you're burning, it also precludes the use of pesticides and herbicides you normally have to use to control pests and competing plant life. And so when you're doing both hand and mechanized burning, it preserves the energy within the rhizomes of wild blueberry plants, and that produces higher yields the following year. But the problem with these mechanized burners, which are usually affixed to the back of a tractor, the oil that these growers use burn at a higher temperature that destroys a lot of the duff layer, which is the top layer of soil made by decomposed leaves and other organic material. And that stuff does a whole lot to really enrich the soil, give nutrients to produce a better yield the next year. And so when you do this by hand at a lower temperature, it protects a crucial soil layer while minimizing the ecological footprint. The burning process is basically a year-long process. So you have to start before any fire is lit. Like in the fall, you have to spread straw throughout all of the fields that have no berries. And then in wintertime, the snow packs the straw into the ground so it has kind of a more even, compact burn when you actually do the burn months layer. He does use what is called a straw spreading rig, which is an antiquated machine that's easier to operate than procure. Like they don't make these anymore. So he basically found parts on Craigslist to assemble what he calls a, quote, Dr. Seuss machine, which unfortunately (laughs) they don't have a picture of, but I would be delighted to see. Yeah. And so once you've gotten all of the straw, it's been spread, it's been compacted by the winter snow. In the springtime, you basically have to find the perfect day for a burn, which means the humidity has to be below 50%, and then the wind has to be below 10 miles an hour so it doesn't spread too fast. Mm -hmm. And obviously, it has to be dry. If there's any morning dew happening, it's not going to burn. But then when you find the right day, and it has to be, if not spontaneous and somewhat mercurial, because everybody has to get together. And right now, it's mostly a core group of friends and family, including his two adult sons. And they carry these five-gallon plastic containers that basically are worn like backpacks and filled with water. And then Lindholm himself carries a drip torch. And so they work together to burn a perimeter around the outside edge of the field. He ignites the straw, and then the helpers shepherd the flame inward up to about 20 to 30 feet using those kind of water backpacks. And it takes hours. I mean, this is a very laborious process. They circle the perimeter until they've made a fire break, which is basically a broad ring around the center of the field over which no flames can jump. Mm -hmm. This is really crucial because the final step of the burn is basically igniting the entire center of the field and then stepping back. Um, He he says that this is the most dramatic and fun moment. You just sit back and let it go. It's like an extra holiday now every year in my calendar, getting the crew back together. (laughs) It sounds like fun. I mean, the the intensive labor of making the fire break maybe is a little backbreaking, but then once you get to just light it all up. That's kind of cool. Oh, yeah. The burns haven't always gone perfectly. Um, In Uh 2010, he said, I thought I was pretty comfortable, but 
that's the year we had to call the fire department. <laughs> they were basically burning a new field for the first time on an exposed hillside. He, his crew was too small. The water source is too far away. And they just ran out of water and the dryness oh, took no. off with it. So the flames leapt into a neighboring blueberry field, burned a small patch of bushes before the fire department could rest control. But the silver lining here is when Lindholm called the owner of the damaged property to apologize. He found himself explaining his process to a curious audience. He explained hmm. how he leases blueberry fields. He manages them organically. Sorry about the accident. <laughs> and this dude turned into a client. And so he's been leasing that field ever since, burning it every year by hand. <laughs> wow. Wow. Wait, so in this situation, if you're a business and you start fires, is the fire department like will bill you? <laughs> I mean, I'm assuming that this is still in a county or jurisdiction that's not fully libertarian and that tax dollars are started, <laughs> you know, kind of, especially because it's meant to protect not just your stuff, but other property. But it would be a good question. My guess is, I don't know, Maine is a little bit more libertarian than the rest. But hey, you know, he's still got a business contract out of it. So the free market reigned again, right? Yeah, right. Absolutely. He's clearly still doing it. <laughs> and he, you know, the process has worked very well for him. He says, you know, he doesn't get 10,000 pounds out of every acre like monoculture fields, but he also never gets total crop failures, which mm. is a concern when you do have monoculture fields. So pretty cool way to keep a nice tradition alive. Yeah, that is neat. We tried to grow blueberries once in our backyard. It didn't. <laughs> it did not work. But <laughs> now I'm thinking maybe it didn't work because we didn't start a fire first. Like this might, it might yeah. excite the process enough for me to say maybe we'll give it another go if I could have a big fire in the backyard first. You know, and, and it may also have to do with the fact that in Maine, you know, having these kinds of prescribed fires may be somewhat safer or easier to manage versus growing blueberries in Texas. But oh, I know we've sure. got huge blueberry farms out here too. Like there's a big one outside of Houston where you can bring the kiddos and pick your own baskets and you mm -hmm. just, you know, pay by the pound or whatever. So I don't know. I'm not going to endorse DIY prescribed <laughs> burns of your own stuff, but I also can't tell you not to. That's right. And and we know we can call the fire department if we do mess up. <laughs> <laughs> For now, anyway. Right. <laughs> Next link. Next link. So we all got to fill out our 2020 bingo card earlier in the year with murder hornets. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, so this article comes from theconversation.com and it's titled How British Columbia and Washington State are Stopping the Spread of Asian Giant Hornets. Yay! Stop hornets. their spread. So this, yeah. this is still a thing. Like I remember hearing about it and then it just kind of fell off the radar with all the other stuff going on. But they're still around. This is still a threat, sort of. Uh-huh. Okay, yeah. good to know. So <laughs> what the article is saying is that the nickname has staying power, but it's not actually as bad as it's made out, and there are things that we can do to stop it, and that's currently what's happening right now. So they were first spotted in British Columbia in August 2019, and the Asian giant hornet actually apparently poses very little threat to just your average everyday American. It's more of a menace to the livelihoods of beekeepers from what they've seen mm. in its native range in East Asia. Yep. But there are concerns that will cause similar problems in North America. Mm. So at least two of the three hornets found this spring were mated queens, which means uh -oh. that at least one colony successfully reproduced last year. Dang. Despite that fact... Giant hornets are not considered established in North America because the definition of establishment, I guess, requires successful reproduction over multiple generations. Mm -hmm. So there's a real chance of actually reversing this introduction through a program of trapping, tracking, and removal of giant hornet nests. 
Stopping the introduction will in many ways be a race against the clock, but because the giant hornet's life cycle can actually be plotted on a calendar, entomologists know exactly how fast they need to move and when to act, which is actually an uncommon advantage when it comes to species introductions. Hmm. So the way this works is that in Japan, giant hornet nest queens emerge from hibernation in the spring, then they spend May and June establishing their nests. During that time, the queen lays its first few eggs, which will then develop into non-reproductive workers. Those workers normally emerge in July, taking over the jobs of building and provisioning the nest, and then after a couple weeks, the queen shifts her focus to laying eggs full-time, and then the colony begins to grow in earnest. And as colonies grow, workers become more and more common. So... The strategies for detection concentrates on trapping workers beginning in July. I assume this is all happening as we speak. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, as worker hornets show up in traps, entomologists hope to be able to zero in on established nests and destroy them before the summer is out. But it's not until late August to early September that giant hornets undergo a dramatic shift in behavior and begin attacking honeybee colonies, which Ooh. is the big issue. Yeah. It's hunting season. So, absolutely. And uh, an entire honeybee colony can be destroyed in the course of a few hours just by a handful of attacking hornets. However, these attacks are conspicuous, which makes it easier for the hornets to be tracked. They will occupy defeated beehives for a few days while they empty the hives of protein-rich bee larvae <laughs> and pupae. And entomologists could take advantage of this by staking out hornet-occupied hives and following the workers back to their nests. Mm. And they do this with technologies like miniature tracking tags and heat vision cameras Ooh. that can help locate underground hornet nests. So they like put a little tracker yeah, so physically like on it. high-tech stuff. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Or they use heat vision goggles, but they're, they're cameras. Right. And, uh, <laughs> it sounds like overkill, but attacks on honeybees are actually some of the last opportunities to track down the established hornet nests. Mm -hmm. It's unknown why giant hornets suddenly begin attacking honeybee colonies in late summer, but one hypothesis is that it's due to an increased need for protein in the nest. Mm. And that protein is needed to support the development of upwards of 300 reproductive females, each of which is a potential future queen. So that means if you don't track down one hornet nest while it's happening, then you could have 300 more on your hands, which is, you know, that's where things get yeah. really bad. Yeah. You mean you've, you've so, got that period to catch them, but if you miss your window, you're screwed. Yeah, exactly. By the time attacks on honeybees are investigated and confirmed, authorities might only have a few weeks left to stop another generation of queens from being reproduced. Ooh. So, but there are people out there doing this. Somebody has got the honeybees' backs. Yes. Except yeah, so <laughs> entomologists at Washington State Department of Agriculture are working on this and so they're placing a large number of their own traps but they're also enlisting the help of the public to actually set out homemade hornet traps and to report any suspicious sightings using an online form at the moment entomologists are cautiously optimistic being careful to recognize that we don't know everything for instance one colony on vancouver island was located and destroyed before any reproductive females were produced but they couldn't find any colonies on the mainland of british columbia or washington state so we don't know if they're still out there or not. Right. We also don't know exactly how far founding queens will travel before they establish their nests. In other hornet species, this can range from less than one to a few dozen kilometers. Wow. And the locations of this spring's queens will tell us that either the new queens traveled up to 34 kilometers before founding their nests or that they came from more than one colony. Right. Either way, it probably means that giant hornets could spread faster than we initially thought. Oh, come on, 2020. <laughs> yeah, I know. No chill. No. <laughs> 
they sort of end the article saying, you know, it's, we don't know how this is going to play out, but the reason we can do this at all is thanks to the decades of basic entomological research on this insect, and we're actually more informed and prepared than maybe the Murder <laughs> Hornet articles from early 2020 would have led us to believe. Well, we've also been lulled into complacency when it comes to estimating our preparedness. So we'll just see how that shakes out. Yeah. I I personally am eagerly awaiting the new brand of uh, CSI Murder Hornet edition. (laughs) I I feel like these are real detectives and their stories need to be told. I mean, (laughs) I agree. I would watch this. Yes. Next link. Next link. Well, this one comes from the BBC. It is called The Accidental Invention of the Illuminati Conspiracy. Do you oh, guys, dear. Do you know? So we stay pretty factual here on Damage <laughs> Thing, but there is some interest to be had, I think, in the factual origins of certain conspiracy theories. And that's really what yes. this is, is where does this come from? Why has it lasted so long? Why is it grabbing right. people's imaginations? I honestly knew nothing about it other than, like, my children occasionally share Illuminati memes with me. Like, that, right. <laughs> that's the extent of my knowledge. I really had no idea what all was behind this. Apparently, right, it's kind of like a catch-all for any kind of, like, massive, unproven, unrealistic conspiracy theory. Like, you can just kind of chalk it up to the Illuminati, right? Right, right. and that's kind of its origin as well. So the, the name comes from the Order of the Illuminati, a Bavarian secret society that was founded in 1776 for, quote, intellectuals to privately group together and oppose the religious and elitist influence over daily life. So they were politically progressive and they were unfortunately outlawed by conservative and Christian critics of the day and faded out of existence. And that was pretty much it, right? So this secret society was just sort of this weird footnote in a history book somewhere. And then in the 1960s, a book was published called Principia Discordia. And okay, I never like <laughs> I used to be all into this, you know, Hail Eris, Callisti. I think I actually have a copy of the Principia Discordia really? because it was kind of this underground church of Bob where it's basically like an inversion of institutionalized religion, but like mm-hmm. in merriment, mischief and chaos, basically. Right. Right. Yeah. The article called it a parody text for a parody faith. They were like the original trolls. Like if you guys remember the yeah. like the flying spaghetti monster, the idea was satire that would cause people to question the actual tenets yes. of other religions, right? Mm-hmm. And so they, you know, they like you said they bid their readers to worship Eris, the goddess of chaos. They were ultimately sort of a collective that wanted to cause civil disobedience, practical jokes and hoaxes as a way to get people to question the authorities in their lives. So, you know, that's fine. That doesn't really uh, seem to be anything sinister yet. Um, (laughs) So one of the authors of Principia Discordia, Carrie Thornley, then teamed up with an author named Robert Anton Wilson, who happened to work at Playboy magazine. And Wilson and Thornley, they bought into this philosophical concept of Principia Discordia. They said, we need to deliberately spread disinformation as a way to combat authoritarianism. The idea being, Mm -hmm. if there's all these competing narratives out there, people will get tired, they will get frustrated, they won't know who to believe, they'll stop believing anybody. I mean, they have a point. Yes, we have seen (laughs) the logical conclusion of that theory, but at the time, they felt like it would be a good thing if people didn't trust authority. Yeah, wake up, sheeple. Yeah, exactly. 
But their plan was, because Wilson worked at Playboy magazine, he had the ability to publish letters to the editor. And so Wilson and Thornley started writing these fake letters to the editor that were (laughs) telling stories about these so-called Illuminati. And then they would also publish letters that refuted the letters they had just written. Like, they played both sides. (laughs) Their whole thing was just put as much conflicting information out there. And for whatever reason, they settled on the Illuminati as the name that they were going to use for this secret society. Eventually, it grew and it was a fun hobby, I guess, until the point (laughs) that Wilson teamed up with a different Playboy writer to write the Illuminatus trilogy of books, right? Which was sort of a fictionalized collection of all the different conspiracy theories that they had put into their letters over the years. Mm -hmm. A compendium. Right. And so this work of fiction became a cult hit. Everybody loved it. It sold so many copies. It was made into a stage play in Liverpool, which launched the careers of Bill Nye and Jim Broadbent, some famous British actors. It was made into a role-playing card game in 1975. It showed up in all these different band names and songs. And to this day, apparently, Beyonce and Jay-Z both have flashed the Illuminati Triangle at their concerts. And, oh. like, <laughs> it's, it just took oh. off. Everybody loved the books. And that was the point at which everyone was like, like you said, a catch-all. Anytime there's a conspiracy, yeah. we're going to just attribute that to the Illuminati because that's what we're going to oh do. Oh, my gosh. At this point, you know, the article kind of starts diving into why. Why do we believe conspiracy theories? Why do we go into this stuff? They said a 2015 study showed that 50% of Americans believe at least one conspiracy theory. Which that's a high percentage. It is. But then I started thinking, I was like, if you look at all the conspiracy theories that are out there and you think, okay, most people only believe in one right? that The number, honestly, 50% might even seem kind of low. Like, I have straight up 9-11 yeah. truthers in my family. I know them. And they're perfectly good, <laughs> decent people who just happen to believe in this one conspiracy theory. And they don't let it rule their lives. That just is like, oh, yeah, they believe that. So, you know, I can see how it's very uh, seductive to want to believe in some of these things. They, uh, they, oh, yeah. they go into the psychology. So, like, another study showed a slight correlation between higher education levels and lower belief in conspiracy theories. But they were quick to point out that there is, in fact, a much stronger correlation between belief in conspiracy theories and stressful life experiences. Basically, Mm. conspiracy theories provide a method of explaining the world when it seems inexplicable. When you don't have control, when you're suffering, you want an easy answer. You're looking for an answer. Right, right. They quoted a professor of, of social psychology, Viren Swamy, who said that actually on some level, conspiracy theories can be good for a population. She said, historically, conspiracy theories in the West have traditionally been these sort of bottom-up release valves for the disenfranchised, right? It allows Mm -hmm. people to say, maybe I don't trust the man who's keeping me down, and maybe I should fight for better working conditions or things like that. But she said, by comparison in South Asia, conspiracy theories have consistently been promoted top-down by the government in order to control the Mm -hmm. population and keep them uncertain about what is true. I mean, not just Asia. Right, right, right. Well, that was that was where she was going. Was like, this is where it started, and now we seem to have some leaders in the West who are thinking, "Hey, that looks pretty cool. I'm going to adopt that policy." <sighs> yeah. Yep. So she also notes, you can try all you want to combat them with facts. You know, your family member or whatever. You can present all the facts you want, but fundamentally, it isn't yeah. going to work. You're wasting your breath. Mm-hmm. The way to yeah. slow down conspiracy theories is with stability. Right. Get those people a yeah. better life get them more confident in their surroundings, and then they'll just stop believing on them on their own. You yeah, know. they're not desperate for some kind of answer because their world is correct already. Right, exactly. They're already comfortable. They're already not feeling like everything is falling apart around them, so someone must be to blame, right? Yeah. I, You know, I get it. I, I can't think of any conspiracy theories that I believe in, 
But honestly, like if you started going through them, I might find one. I'm like, oh, you know, actually there might, that might be true. But I also feel like I don't care. Right. And I I think that's Mm -hmm. going to what Swami was saying is like, my life is relatively stable considering right now. So Mm -hmm. I don't feel like I need an answer. Like I could be Mm -hmm. like, well, you know, maybe it is true, but what does it affect my day to day? I got to go to work. I got to put food on the table. That's my life. Right. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there definitely seems borne out in my personal experience. And, you know, it's nice to know that the conspiracy theories are out there in case I do get unstable. I'll have something (laughs) to make me feel better. (laughs) You got options. That's right. A lot of options. A lot of options. Yeah, I don't think we're going to run out of options anytime soon. That's right. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're glad you've joined us. Some of the many articles we did not get to today include What Astronauts Can Learn from Nuclear Submariners, the ripple effects of a space skirmish, and are ultraviolet sanitizing lights safe for humans? I always love the, is this safe? Because usually the answer is yes, it is. But you don't know, and you have to go read. You have to read the article, That's man. Right. That's right. So we recommend that you go read that article, find out if it's safe, report back to us. If you want to keep our podcast going, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Wayspur Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.